What better song to prepare us to get into the Gospel of Mark and, uh, and beginning with in Mark the, the discussion of and, and looking at the life and the ministry of John the Baptist. So if you don't have a Bible, put your hands up nice and high. The guys in the back will bring one to you. Let's pray and then we'll get into the Gospel of Mark chapter 1. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we just enjoy the music, the words to those songs as we hear what we're singing, um, and we think not about the first coming, Lord, but the second coming of Jesus Christ, that uh, your word boldly declares that you have come, you were crucified and died and were buried, and you rose again on the third day, you ascended into heaven, and from there one day, when the time is right, you will return. And set up your kingdom on this, world, and on this earth, Lord, a kingdom like no other, a kingdom built upon righteousness and not selfishness and greed and corruption. Lord, that, uh, and, our, and our hearts reflect that. And so I sit here, Lord, and, uh, with your word in my hand and with people attentive and listening, and I sit here with fear and trembling, Lord, knowing that we are about to share from your word. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you'd prepare me, my mind, my heart, Lord, that all of my words would be accurate to reflect your heart and what you want to say, that, um, that people here would not put their trust in, in the messenger, but in the living God whose word we share. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen, amen. So kind of a double introduction this morning, as if one introduction is not in and of itself long enough. Uh, introduction to the gospel of Mark in general, many of you know that there are not one, not two, not three, but four Gospels. And, and some of you already know, and I'll say this in advance, we'll, we'll talk about this in chapter one, that the word gospel simply means good news. And it's not uh, specific to the Bible, although it's taken from, uh, you know, from Roman or Greek civilization. Anytime there was an election of a new emperor or something like that, that there would be heralded, hey, there's good news. And so this word was adopted, certainly ap- uh, applies to Jesus Christ. And so this is called the gospel according to Mark. There are four gospels, three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic gospels, means to see together. So they're not contradictory of one another. What they are is complementary. It's like uh, having three eyewitnesses to uh, to an event, to a situation where, where each records things according to their own perspective. And Mark is an interesting gospel. It's the shortest, only 16 chapters. It's the shortest of all the gospels. And, uh, and I got to thinking, well, who is Mark anyway? I mean, he's not a disciple, right? Who is he to write a gospel? What gives him the, the authority or, or right to write one? Well, many of you may know, or maybe this is new to you, that he writes on behalf of Uh, the Apostle Peter. So there's no Gospel of Peter, right? Uh, Luke also was not a disciple of Jesus, but Luke was a doctor, and he investigated and did his research, and and he writes his Gospel based on eyewitness testimony, just as Mark has. Now, we have this from church history, and so I'll bore you for just a second. How do we know that Mark, or maybe some of you know him better as John Mark in the New Testament, he was certainly... um, he, he, we certainly see him through the New Testament uh, in First Peter. Uh, Peter mentions him by name, and he's mentioned in the book of Acts and whatnot. But if you go back in time, there was a, 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 a document written 
by a man named Papias, P-A-P-I-A-S. We don't have that document anymore, but we have references to it in later writings in the second century A.D. So the first century is 0 to 99, right? Second century is 100 to 200 uh, A.D. So this guy who wrote was a third-generation Christian. You know, the apostles and that group, first generation, then they disciple others, and they, they, they disciple others. So this guy is a, just a, very close in time to the original disciples, third generation. And he wrote something that was lost, but then referred to by others later on. And here's what he wrote. According to a first century figure known as John the Presbyter, so he refers to this John, who was probably John the Apostle, He says, Mark, having become become the interpreter of Peter, who wrote down accurately, though not in order, whatsoever he remembered of the things said or done by Christ. For he neither heard the Lord nor followed him, but afterward, as I said, he followed Peter, who adapted his teaching to the needs of his hearers, but with no intention of giving a connected account of the Lord's discourses, so that Mark committed no error while he thus wrote some things as he remembered them, as he, Peter, remembered them. For he was careful of one thing, not to omit any of the things which he had heard and not to state any of them falsely. So that's recorded from church history. I say that to say Mark's authority derived from not just the Holy Spirit, but also he was Peter, an eyewitness to the life and the events of Jesus Christ. Peter was not only an eyewitness, but he was one of the inner circle of Jesus, one of the inner three, you know, um, that that was part of Jesus' group of disciples. He then would recount verbally the things that he would remember and was remembering about his life and experiences with Jesus. And then Mark would record those things, and and he records them in what we now call the Gospel of Mark. So some believe it was written before Peter died. Others believe it was written after Peter died. But the important thing to remember is because a lot of people say, well, how do we know we can trust these things? And how do we know? Hasn't it been been a lot of time transpire? Mark is the earliest Gospel. And it's from Mark that Matthew and Luke get some of their, their information. Interestingly, Luke, a doctor, he does a lot of research interviewing people like Mary. Interviewing people that, had, that were in and around the events of Jesus. And no doubt using uh, Mark's firsthand testimony of Peter to, uh, to assist him. So adds to the gospel. Mark's gospel, you'll see, is very fast-paced. I mean, if you like excitement, if you like to keep things on the move, Mark's gospel will be for you. It's a very, very fast-paced gospel. Um, again, uh, it, it um, moves quickly. He doesn't go into a lot of details in, in a number of things. Peter is mentioned more in Mark's gospel than in any other gospel. A couple things that, uh, that other people have said. One New Testament commentator uh, named Kenneth Wust said the gospel according to Mark is preeminently the gospel of action, of pictures, and of description. Another commentator, Frank Abelan, said the gospel of Mark is a succinct, unadorned, yet vivid account of the ministry, suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. With these things, my hope and, uh, is that as we go through the gospel according to Mark and the title of the whole study is uh, discovering Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And sometimes we need to sort of maybe rediscover Jesus because you've heard things. You've grown up. This person told you that about Jesus and that person told you that or you were in this denomination and you learned that or you learned this. And it's great to sit down together. And we don't skip anything, folks. We don't just go 
chapter 1 and then chapter 5, and we're going to go right on through so that you can know who God is because you're going to know who Jesus is. And, and they are one in the same. We know, that's why, you know, you can talk about God pretty freely in the world, can't you? You can say, well, God this and God that. But the minute you bring in the name of Jesus, things change. Why? Because Jesus tells us exactly the God that we're talking about. Because when people say God, they can mean a lot of different things. But when we say Jesus, now we know specifically what we're talking about. The God who died on the cross for my sins because I needed a Savior. Now that offends people. So in discovering, in reading the Gospel of Mark, I hope for some of you, maybe it's a first-time discovery. Maybe you're, you're just started coming to church for the first time. Maybe you're, you've only been in church a few weeks and this is all very new to you. I want to introduce you to my Savior. His name is Jesus. And he loves me. And he loves you so much that he died so that I could have a, a life reconnected to God. And, and I would not have to be eternally condemned for my sins. And I want you to meet him too. Because he is awesome. He's good. And he's just. And he's holy. And he's perfect. And he's beautiful. And he's forgiving. And he's full of grace and he's full of mercy and this is the jesus we'll discover in the gospel according to mark i think that's it by way of general introduction uh chapter one verse one the beginning of the gospel of jesus christ the son of god as it is written in the prophets behold i send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you the voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. We sort of sang that in our song this morning, didn't we? Verse 4, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me, who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased." So we'll end there, go back to the beginning, and it is interesting that the way Mark starts, he says, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if you've read the other gospels, Mark jumps right into the ministry of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner or the announcer for Jesus. Now, I got to looking back, how many of you are old enough to remember The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson? Yeah, okay, you just revealed your age. Some of the kids are going, who's that? Who's that? I remember sitting up late and watching that pretty regularly when I was growing up. And he had an announcer, right? Remember? What was his name? Ed McMahon, right? And you know, how did, what did he say? He. <laughs> you got it. And he'd point over that direction, and then Johnny Carson would come out the screen. You guys know, you were up late with me. And he, but now Johnny was not the star of the, I mean, excuse me, Ed McMahon was not the star of the show, was he? His job was to point people to the star of the show, and that was Johnny Carson. Well, in this case, Mark starts with John the Baptist, uh, the announcer 
of Jesus. His job was not to be the star of the show. And he knew that. Human beings get confused about that. Pastors get confused about that. Lord knows worship leaders get confused about that. We are not the star of the show. John the Baptist knew he was not the star of the show. He had a role to point people to Jesus Christ. And then people deserve that. People deserve to be pointed to Jesus. Not, I can't help you. I can only point you to Jesus. I don't know what it is, what problem you came in, what burden you came bearing. I can pray with you. I can share God's word with you. And I can, the best thing I can do for you, the best thing any friend of yours can do for you is listen and be there for you. But the best thing they can do is do what? Point you to Jesus. That's what your need is. So he says in the beginning of the gospel, again, gospel meaning good news of Jesus Christ, not beginning with the, um, uh, the Bethlehem, there, there's no manger scene, there's no shepherds in the fields, there's no angelic announcement that, that Mark, he just gets right down to business, right? Like I said, it's a fast-paced, kind of in-your-face gospel, and Mark just says, let's get going. The beginning of the gospel, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And you can take your pencil, if you don't mind doing this, and just cross out the word the. There's, it's not there. There's no, there's no article there um, in the original Greek. So it would just be Jesus Christ, and it's meant to point you to his divinity, Son of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, that, when you talk about Jesus as the Son of God, he, he, two titles, Son of God, Son of Man, means he has, he's originated from God. He was in, you know, he's eternal, but he came from God, came from heaven, and that's why he's called the Son of God. It speaks of, of his divinity. Interestingly, though, when we go to Israel, we go to the Temple Mount area. And you know, in the place where the temple used to be now stands the Dome of the Rock Mosque. Now, you can't read it because it's not written in English unless you read Arabic across the top of the Dome of the Rock Mosque. There are the words written in Arabic, God has no son. God has no son. Now, you tell me how you can believe, well, all roads lead to heaven. All, all faith beliefs are reasonable. And then you say, well, here's a, here's a religion, so to speak, uh, and I'll just use that word for the sake of argument, Christianity, that says God has a son, his name is Jesus. And then you have another religious belief that says God has no son. How can they both be right? For those that say, well, they, they, we, they're all, there's all some truth in all to all of it. Well, there's a complete contradiction there. Here, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus Christ? He is son of God. And, his, and, and what he brings to them at the time that's being written, there was 400 years of silence between Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, and John the Baptist, really, uh, again, an Old Testament prophet. He ushers in the New Testament. But there was 400 years of silence. Now people were living and things were happening, and, and there were leaders and all that, but no recognized prophet of God. No one stood up and said, thus saith the Lord for 400 years. And they began to think that God didn't care anymore or God had forgotten about them. Why, why this long silence from God? And then can you imagine when John the Baptist comes on the scene and, and begins speaking for God again? 
and begins talking about the Savior that they were hoping for. I mean, Rome is in control. Their identity is, is challenged, is lost in some ways. Uh, and, and now this good news of, of the Savior is coming. I mean, if you're laying on the kitchen floor, I've fallen and I can't get up, and you hear, hey, the rescue squad is on your way, that's like, that's good news, right? Man, thank God. I'm hurting, you know. We're in trouble. And so this is the good news. And, and, and it's not, John the Baptist is not acting on his own behalf. He's not just deciding, you know, I can't get a job in the city, so maybe I'll just go try to, you know, uh, be a public speaker. I'll be a motivational speaker. And those that know John the Baptist know that he was anything but, in, in some ways, his message was hard. He was a, man, I, oh, I, just, I, lo- I can't wait to meet John the Baptist in heaven. I mean, aren't there, do you have people that uh, you read through the Bible and you go, man, I can't wait to meet that guy or that woman. You know, I can't wait to meet these people. And John the Baptist is one that I, I want to see what he looks like, you know. I want to see, just, I just want to see what he's like, you know. I can't, I can't wait to see him, to be, to be next to him there worshiping the Lord. Anyway, so he's not just doing this on his own. As it is written, verse 2 says, in the prophets. So we have a, a quote, two quotes actually matched together or put together, one from Malachi chapter 3, last book of the Old Testament, and then from Isaiah chapter 40. This is what Mark quotes, Behold, I, speaking of God, send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So, Who's he been appointed by? And as they see him out there in the wilderness, everybody's like, well, where's this guy from? I mean, is he from your denomination? Is he from your denomination? We don't know who he is. He's appointed by God. That's much better than an appointment by man, right? Man can appoint people to do stuff, but unless God has appointed them, then it doesn't really matter. So God says, I'm sending my messenger uh, before your face. So before there's Johnny Carson, there's Ed McMahon. You know, before the band shows up at the venue, the road crew is there getting set up. And the job, and this is a reference back to ancient custom, you know, uh, you think of the entourage that the president has, the Secret Service, all the work that's done in advance so that the president com- can come in and have a smooth entry and everything goes smoothly and all the work that happens on the front of that so that that can go smoothly. Well, if you're, a, if you're an ancient king or prince or someone of, of nobility or notoriety, and you were coming to a village, you know, they had dirt roads and cobblestone, you know, roads and things like that. And so, you know, there are potholes. And the last thing, you know, if you're up on six guys are carrying you and your little thing and you're sitting in there and fanning yourself and, and six guys are carrying your special carriage thing and one of them trips on a stone or, or they can't make it up the hill, you know, they're going up the hill and they slip and they fall. And, and that looks... You look pretty, then that's very humiliating to you, and you don't want that if you're an ancient king. So the, 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 the advanced team would go out and make sure the roads were, all the potholes were filled in, all the roads were clear, there was no problem, so that when the, the king would come, he could have a, a clear path to enter in on to, for his acceptance and for his, his meeting. Does that make sense? So that's the analogy that's being drawn. But of course, with John the Baptist, it's a spiritual preparation, not, not just preparing the roads, um, but more preparing people's hearts. He's got the ministry. He's coming in, in the spirit and the power of Elijah, which is, again, we sang that song talking about that. The, the ministry of Elijah 
was one of turning people's hearts. If you remember in 1 Kings chapter 18, Mount Carmel, Elijah challenging the, the people of Israel that had become had fallen into idolatry under terrible leadership, worshiping idols. I, I mean, it's just they, they'd completely turned, well, not completely turned from God. They had God on one hand, they had idols on the other. They were sort of wanting their cake and eat it too. And Elijah calls them out on Mount Carmel. And he says, look, how long, and maybe this is for somebody here this morning, you know, you you like a little bit of church, but you also like to go out there, do this, and you like to be over there, and you think, you can combine all these different things together. And maybe the word for you this morning is the word that Elijah had for his people. How long are you going to jump back and forth between two opinions, or three opinions, or four opinions? How long until you actually figure out who you really are? How long until you actually commit to something in your life? Instead of just going, well, I'm a, I, I want to hedge all my bets and make sure I got all my bases covered. And kind of cover all your bases, you can't cover any of them. And so he challenges the people of Israel. How long are you going to... And it's like a bird flitting back and forth from branch to branch. You know, one minute, you're, you're into the church thing. The next minute, you're over here with Buddha. You're meditating on your navel and you're doing yoga. You know, again, not that, that yoga is wrong, but, you know, the idea is you're worshiping something else or, you know, you're over here... How long are you going you're gonna to do that? And he says, hey, look, if God is God, then serve him. And I love that. It's just a clear and concise message. If God is God, if what we read is true, then serve him. And that was the ministry that Elijah had. He called the people to repent, called them back to decide, hey, if God's God, serve him. And then the rain came, and, and you can read that in First, first uh, Kings chapter 18. So this is the, the message of turning people, just like Elijah did, of turning people's hearts back to God, of, people, of turning people from darkness to light. Now, they had all their religious stuff, didn't they? I mean, it's not like there was no religion. This is what's so phenomenal about this, and, and, and I'm sort of getting ahead of myself. Let's, let's slow down here. I get excited. I'm sorry. I get excited about John the Baptist. I send my messenger before your face who prepare your way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And, and where, did, where does he start to preach and to, to baptize? In the wilderness. This is what Isaiah said. The four, when the Messiah is coming, when the Savior is coming, you'll know it. Before you even meet him, you'll know he's coming because the one that's going to announce him will be in the wilderness. Now, don't think about Pleasant Grove or Skyline Drive when you think wilderness. Think desert. And think uninhabited place. That's what's meant by the wilderness. You know what the voice of one can do? You think, well, who am I? What's my voice matter? Hey, the whole, the, John the Baptist, one voice crying out in the wilderness, telling people the truth, calling people to think about the way they're living, calling and, and challenging people. The one, you got a voice, folks. You have a voice at work, you have a voice at home, you have a voice in your family, you have a voice in this community. One voice can make a huge difference. John the Baptist sort of spearheads a huge revival because he believed and therefore he spoke. There's sometimes when your actions speak louder than the wor- your words, but there's sometimes when your voice really matters. You say, well, I'm, I'm kind of bashful, I don't like to talk. Well... Love makes us do crazy things, doesn't it? 
I mean, you see this, uh, you see a new couple, a newlywed couple or a young couple just start dating, and man, they can't stop talking about it. You, you work with some girl, and she just got a new boyfriend, and that's all she's talking about on Facebook. That's all she's talking about at work. I'm shy. I don't like to talk about it. You know, she's in love, man, and she's going to talk about it. The voice of one crying out, not crying boo-hoo, crying, uh, yelling out or speaking with, with depth and with passion. In the wilderness, and what's he saying? Get ready, man. He's coming. The the Savior is coming. Now, what if you found out the President of the United States was coming to your house for dinner tonight? You'd have a lot of questions, wouldn't you? <laughs> Let me tell you what I would do if I was president, right? That's you'd, you'd have your list ready. But if you know, if someone you admired or someone who was was coming to your house, oh man, let's we got we got to clean up, got to get ready. Prepare the way of the Lord. And then verse 4 says, and John came. So who is this person that's being spoken of? John. John the baptizer. He came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Uh, terrible strategic planning. Terrible strategic planning. I mean, if you're going to have a revival, I mean, you've got to get out. You've got to send your group out. You've got to do the demographics. You've got to interview people. You've got to find a great venue with lots of seating. Uh, You've you, you got to get this right, right? I mean, but where does he come? He comes into the, he's in the wilderness. He's in an uninhabited place. That doesn't make any sense. He's not in Jerusalem. He's down by the Jordan, by the Jordan River, just north of the Dead Sea, just on the upper side of the Dead Sea. Uninhabited place. And that's where he sets up his ministry. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Preaching and talking about and baptizing people wasn't uh, all that unfamiliar to the Jews. I mean, they were familiar with ritual washings and that kind of thing. They were even familiar with proselytizing. If a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism, they had to come by baptism circumcision and sacrifice that's the three things they would do to come and become converted to uh to judaism so here are these dirty god-forsaken gentiles that want to be converted they're apart from god and they want to come close to god and so the jews would say well you got to get back you got to get cleansed you got to get baptized and and that would be a given and then you got to get circumcised a little more challenging and then you got to sacrifice as if circumcision wasn't a sacrifice. But now he's calling and talking to the Jewish people themselves. It's like rolling into the Vatican or rolling into Rome, some, you know, some side alley in Rome and saying, hey, we need to repent and, and have forgiveness. Remission is just a putting away of or forgiveness of sins. He's talking to people uh, not about God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He's talking about uh, preaching repentance. Now, I love this word. Uh, I mean, to repent means a change of mind. And I know how it feels. And I hope that you all do too. I remember the day I got saved. And just that feeling deep in my gut, like, what have I done? What am I doing? What I, what? How did I get here? Do you know that feeling? Like, I don't, I, I can't, you know, you guys, many of you know my story, some of you don't. I wasn't saved at a Billy Graham crusade. I wasn't saved during a, an emotional altar call while the worship leader was 
gently plucking on his guitar in the background. I was saved in a parking lot in Charlottesville. The Lord spoke directly to my heart. And, and this gives me great confidence in the work of the Holy Spirit in your lives and the lives of people in our community. And it wasn't that he pointed out that, that his, his love initially to me, that wasn't what got me. What got me was I recognized my, my sinfulness. And, and you'd, you'd have looked at me and said, Steve, he's a pretty successful guy. I had a good job. I mean, dreadfully handsome, well-built, you know. Uh, I had it all. Great hair. No, I, yo, that's really a joke. This morning, so I'm in the shower this morning, right, getting ready for church. And, of course, uh, you know, my wife's got her. I just usually use soap for my hair, right, you know, because it's like, why bother? You know, why, why prune a dead tree? Um, but she's got this new conditioner in there, so I'm going to try some of this stuff. I look on the label and it says, you know, revive your hair or something like that. So did it work? You know, I used it. Did it work? Revival. I don't know. Where did I? Repentance for the remission of sins. Oh, but I, I recognized there was an emptiness in my life. I'd walked away from God. I'd walked away from God to look at me. Hey, he's a good person. He's got it all together. Good job. All the rest, right? But in my heart, I knew I was not living for God. I'd walk. I was far from God. The way I was living, the things I was doing were, were far from God. Uh, and again, you wouldn't know that on the surface, even if I, and some of you, you've been in church for years. You've been in church for, and to, to, to repent means to change your mind in such a way that it changes your direction and your behavior. Uh, John the Baptist lays it out in, in Luke chapter 3. John the Baptist lays it out for people. They said, well, what does it look like? What do we do? And he said, hey, if you have two garments, two tunics, then uh, give, give one of them away. I mean, be generous. Share your stuff. And if you have a lot of food, I mean, share that too. Share your, your food with someone who doesn't have any. And, if the, and the tax collectors came to him to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what, what should we do? What does repentance look like in our life? And he said to them, Hey, only collect what you're supposed to. You know, don't gouge people. And then the soldiers come and said, Well, what does repentance look like for us? And they said, don't intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. You know somebody's saved if they're content with their wages, right? That's a definite sign of salvation. You go to work, no, nah, I'm good. Yeah. No, raise, now, nah, thanks. I'm good. I'm good. Man, what is wrong with you? I got eternal rewards. That's what I got. Repentance looks like something. It doesn't look like tears and I'm sorry and I regret it. Although that can be part of repentance. Sometimes people, when they repent, when they finally get to that place, and they, they, in their heart, they recognize they've been living apart from God, and they recognize they've been living wrong, and their life is empty, and all those things. Sometimes there's a lot of tears. But tears themselves don't necessarily mean that repentance has happened. Repentance is indicated by fruit. What is that fruit? It's a changed life. Because that's what you're saying. Is you're saying, when I repented that day, I, I, I didn't know it. I'd never read the verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that if any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. I'd never read that before. But somehow, in my heart, I knew that that was true. I knew that that day was a new beginning for me. That everything was like as a fresh start. And so as John the Baptist is baptizing, as I got baptized, as some of you have been baptized, you recognize going down to the water, everything old is passing away. It's a burial. 
The old man is gone and done. And it's a cleansing. All that old stuff, all that shame, all the stuff you never want to tell anybody, all the stuff, the secret, the dirty little secrets you hide in your heart, the things you do when no one's looking. When you get to that place in your heart, you go, I am done. I am done living this way. I'm done hiding. I'm done running. I'm done sinning that way. And you come and you say, I, I, I want to be baptized. I want to be cleansed. I want my sins forgiven, washed away. And, and oh, man, so freeing. So John comes preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins to the Jewish people who would have been like, hey, what, we don't need that. But they... When a guy comes and he's in the wilderness and he's preaching truth and it's real and it's powerful, people are traveling 20 miles to hear him. You know, we're like, ah, it's a nice morning. I think I'm going to sleep in this morning. These people 20 miles to hear this guy preach when the temple was right there because they knew they needed what he said. There was an expectancy. There was a recognition that the religious system didn't do it. The religious system wasn't, wasn't, working for them it, and, and it had become so external don't you don't you see that happen the religious system sometimes becomes all about the externals and so john comes preaching about being being baptized being immersed in the water as an indicator of and as a desire for the forgiveness of sins what a beautiful thing you want to see a revival do you want to see a revival in your home you want to see a revival in this community it begins uh not with great a great band and a cool church facility. Doesn't even begin with an entertaining speaker. It begins with a call to repentance. To say, hey, you got to think about how you're living. And if you're walking away from God, you're living apart from God, I want to invite you back. I want to invite you back to God. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone opens to me, I'll come in. And I'll dine with him. He with me. We'll have a relationship together. But he's standing there. He's knocking. Repentance is opening the door and saying, Jesus Christ, come in. I invite you in. Verse 5. Wildly, wildly successful. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out and kept coming. The Greek says they kept coming to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River. Doing what? Confessing their sins. Oh, it's so rare. It is so, to me, it's so unbelievably rare. People come to Jesus, we just, we like, we, we want instant Jesus. We want instant, instant Christ. You know, I just want to add, add water and, and have it work, you know. Just, I want to just get baptized and have it work without the repentance part. Instant Jesus, just add water. It is, I don't know what we're scared of, folks. I don't know, maybe church has produced this over the years. Maybe people, we just hide. What, it is so freeing for you to say, yes, this is what I've done. This is where I've been. Yes, I'm embarrassed about it. Yes, I'm ashamed of it. But I am so thankful that I have a God who forgives me my sins and my trespasses, cleanses me from all unrighteousness. John said, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But there's this wall. I've felt it for years, even in this church. There's a wall up when it's like, hey, come down and receive Jesus Christ. Like, nah, people are going to see. 
people are going to know that I'm actually a sinner. You know, I've spent so much time convincing people that I'm a good person. If I walk down that aisle and I say I want to be saved, they're going to know I'm, I'm a sinner. Yes! Right? And they're going to know that I'm being saved. And they're going to know that my sins are washed away. I don't know what the wall is, folks, but I'm inviting you to take it down. I'm inviting you to be honest, to come confessing your sins. I mean, when you get that, when when you let that wall down, when you begin to be able to be honest about who you are and that you ain't perfect and they're not expected to be perfect, I mean, I can't tell you the freedom, the absolute and utter freedom when you don't have to keep up appearances anymore. Oh, I, I just... It's awesome. So they come, and they're confessing, and they're continually confessing their sins. As they're coming one by one, they're coming to be baptized. The crowd is gathering. I mean, this is a huge revival. The crowd is growing. The people are coming. They're being baptized. Fantastic. Now, Mark takes the time to tell us about John's wardrobe and his diet. Interesting. Like, why? John, now, John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, now that you need to know, right? That was important information for some reason. Uh, John the Baptist would never have been allowed to preach in a lot of churches today. Because he wasn't wearing, it doesn't say John came into the wilderness wearing a suit and tie. Sometimes we put the focus on the wrong things, don't we? Sometimes we, we, we think the wrong things are important. We think the right things aren't important. Didn't matter what he was wearing. He was, maybe in some ways you could say he was dressed like Elijah, you know. Imagine, he's got a new camel hair suit, you know. I'm sure it was out of fashion. But maybe appropriate for a guy who lives in the desert. I mean, you just picture this guy, like, he's got this message, and people just scratching their heads going, what is with this guy? I don't know, but do you hear him? I'm getting baptized. It's convicting. It's powerful. I don't care what he's wearing. I don't care if he's wearing a baseball hat and camouflage, you know. He is right in what he's saying. Our system is broken, and somebody needs to fix it. And this guy is preaching truth. I've heard the the scribes preach, and I've heard the Pharisees preach, and I've heard the religious people preach. And when I hear them, all I hear is emptiness. But when I hear this guy talk, it pricks me to the heart, and I know he's right. It's not about the government. It's not about this. It's not about that. He's calling me to confess my sins. And 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 again, the, the... strategic planning team, none of that. He's wearing camels. This is what I love about the Lord. I mean, this is, this is my God. The God who says, I don't care what you're wearing. Just preach for me. Preach for me. Camel's hair and a leather belt. And, and look what he's eating. What does your breath smell like after you eat locusts? And wild honey. You know what I mean? One guy I heard say, I appreciate that John the Baptist has a sweet tooth. I like that. He ate locusts. I mean, I guess you eat what's around. No fancy restaurants for him. Uh, He's just, I think he's so caught up. It's like, I don't have time to eat. It's like locusts are like fast food to that generation, you know. Oh, there's lunch, you know. Let me picture him jumping across the, the ground trying to catch his lunch. And all this, you know, there's, there's other things behind this. There's what the law said. And John the Baptist is, is many would say, a, a Nazarite. He's separated for God, and that meant certain things. His hair wasn't cut. He kept himself from, from wine or from, from strong drink, that type of thing. Locusts. Hey, 
allowable in the law. Isn't that good to know? The food laws allow you can eat locusts and not feel convicted about it. Aren't you glad to know that? You learned something at church this morning. Now, I got one up on him. I eat stink bugs. So if you were here last week, you know. So I'm one up on John. So that's what his appearance, um, he was just himself. That's what I love about him. He was just himself. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and to loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I, I like to underline John the Baptist. The Bible says of him, Jesus says of him, among, there is not a greater person who's ever lived that was born of a woman. The greatest man ever lived, John the Baptist. Greatest ministry, he could point to Jesus Christ and say, behold the Lamb of God, there he is. Not one, not one greater born than John the Baptist. He did no miracles, by the way. Not a single miracle recorded for John the Baptist. And he says, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Taking off the sandals of your teacher, your master, was the job of the lowest slave in the household. They would take off the sandals of the guests, wash the feet. And John the Baptist, greatest ministry of all time, greatest man born of a woman, his account of himself is relative to Jesus. I'm not even worthy to do the job of his lowest slave. That's valuable, that. That's humility, folks. I don't think he's just saying that, do you? You think it's a false humility? No, no, I'm not worthy. You know, meanwhile, inside, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm so worthy. I don't think it's a false humility. I think he had a very good perspective, a perspective that a lot of people need to have. When it comes to Jesus Christ, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's what Paul said. Paul said, I'm not worthy to be an apostle. I'm the least of the apostles. Not worthy to be one. The great apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament. He says, I'm not worthy. Yet, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's called proper identity. You know, do you think he had self you think John the Baptist had self-esteem issues? I don't think so. You hear him preach to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, you brood of vipers. I mean, this guy did not have issues with his identity. Not 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 issues with his uh, self-confidence. He preached with tremendous power and tremendous honesty. And here's why. You know, so why is he saying I'm I'm there's one coming that's mightier than I. I'm not even worthy. He's so great. Jesus is so great. He is so awesome. He is so powerful. He says, I'm not worthy even to take his shoes off and wash his feet. Why? John says, I know my limitations. I know I'm human. So John knew you have to know you are not the Christ. You have human limitations. John the Baptist said, I can baptize you with water. That's that's the extent of what John could do for them baptize them, immerse them in the water so they would get wet. But the one that's coming after me, he, the Messiah, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Immerse you into the life of the Spirit of God. 
Water ba- you've been baptized in water, that's fine. What is this all pointing to? What is water baptism all about? Hey, Jesus comes to get baptized. We see that in the next scene here. Jesus comes himself. John says, hey, I need to be baptized by you. I shouldn't be baptizing you. Jesus said, hey, look, this is what's right. And, and we'll talk about that next week, I believe. But uh, um, I, John said, I know, I, know, I know my limitations. I baptize you with water. But what that points to, what that signifies, the greater thing is this immersion into the life of the Holy Spirit. It's like when you baptize something, it's, you can dip something in water. Like you can take a, a cucumber and you can run it under the water and it gets wet. Or you can immerse it in pickling juices for a while and when it comes out, it's taken on the flavor of what it's been immersed in. That's the idea of Christian baptism. That's the idea of Christian baptism with the Holy Spirit. That you take on the flavor. You're you're infused with the life of the Spirit of God. That has all the characteristics and all the character and all the personality of God Himself. Now how can you have that? How can if we dunked you in vinegar and left you there for about six months, what would, you, what would your skin look like? What would that smell like when you got out of there, right? How would you smell if we dunked you in vinegar? You'd smell like vinegar. Now, I'm telling you that Jesus Christ promises his believers, we see this fulfilled in the book of Acts, not just baptism in water, not just a ritual whereby you get wet, but as you come repentant, as you come with this mind to follow God. I can baptize you in water, but what really matters is that you're baptized, you're immersed in, you take on the flavor of Jesus Christ. That's miraculous. That's supernatural. And that's why John says, hey, there's one coming that's mightier than I. I can baptize you with water, but he comes to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So you might, you know, it's time to close up for today, but here's what I want to tell you. If you go, you know, I don't know, if I've ever been baptized with the Holy Spirit. I don't know if that's ever been something that's, that's, I've been told about. I don't know that I knew that, that was even a thing. You know, I thought I got dunked in the water and came out and that was that. This is what's life-changing. When, when, when a person is baptized with the Holy Spirit, when it's not about religion anymore, when it's about the life of God filling you, immersed into it, that is when your life changes. And that is available to you today. If you don't know, if you don't know, I, you know I, we could get into the theology of all this and we go to all the different verses, but here's what I'm telling you. If you have a question and you go, I don't know if I've ever been baptized with the Holy Spirit that's promised that Jesus would do and fulfilled in the book of Acts, I don't know, then I invite you to come forward and you can just ask God, fill me, baptize me so that I take on your flavor with the Holy Spirit. And, and it comes on like a dove to Jesus, right? Descends like a dove. So you're, it's not going to make you, I don't know what you've seen on TV, like people just, you know, squirming in the aisles. Or it's not going to, that's not, a dove is, is a dove a wild animal? A dove is gentle. So when the Spirit of God comes on you, it's not like, you know, it's convulsions. And, the Spirit of God is gentle. And so I want to invite you to come down as we close. I'll be over here. The prayer room will be open. And we can pray for you, lay hands on you to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then you'll know what it's like because you'll, you'll receive it 
and you'll experience it for yourself. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, just as these things are spoken about, as these things are shared about, I pray that uh, we would live uh, that life in the Spirit, Lord. Baptized, filled, immersed in everything um, Jesus Christ. Not just baptized in water, but the greater baptism, the Spirit baptism. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen.